I, I got to say, one signal for me that Title II is the way to go is because there seems to be nothing that strikes fear in the heart of the broadband industry than Title II. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. It's Christopher Mitchell here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota. Today, we're once again with Sean Gonsalves, who is our, on the Community Broadband Network's team, he is our senior reporter and editor and now communications team lead. Welcome to the show, Sean. All right. Glad to be back. And honestly, I'm glad to see you back in the saddle. You know, we tried our best to hold it down for the for a couple of shows. I enjoyed, I enjoyed them. I think you guys did a good job. Yeah. It was um, fun. It was fun. We didn't get as much fan mail as I, as I explicitly asked for. <laughs> <laughs> when I can use the word beg. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I got to say that uh, 475 episodes about that we're in now. And um, uh, sometimes it's, it's hard to like, um, to figure out what to do a little bit differently and things like that. So I, I really appreciate you all stepping up. So I wasn't trying to, force a couple of extra shows in that where I was just wasn't sure who to have on and things like that, because you know, we want to keep telling interesting stories and there's tons of folks out there with interesting stories, but um, we want to keep upping the game. And sometimes I just don't have the time to really cultivate a, a good show. Got a lot of episodes under your belt. It's nice to take a break from time to time. And, you know, I'm certainly willing participant. Uh, so one of the things I did, I went to the black Hills of South Dakota and man, they're pretty, they're awesome. And uh, highly recommended. Um, does it does it actually get warm this time of year in South Dakota? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, it was uh, it was you know it was plenty warm for me, and uh, the nights were in the fifties, which was perfect. You know, I guess I, I always want to tell people like it's really beautiful there. You should go check it out. But one of the best things about it is that a lot of people don't go check it out. So, <laughs> it's nice to escape. Um, we're going to talk about some interesting stuff today. We're going to do a, a rundown of a couple of different stories that, that we've been, have been percolating around the Muni Networks.org website. But then, Sean, you're going to grill me. Like, this is like, uh, I asked you to, to come on and to give me a hard time about uh, what's going to be going on in terms of antitrust around broadband and things like that. And why, why ILSR, um, you know, here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, why we think the way we do about certain things. Um, I think you tend to agree with us, so it's kind of a hard assignment, but I appreciate you stepping up to it. For sure. For sure. I, I, I enjoy it. You know, when I was, when I was young, um, a lot of the elders in my family called me Philadelphia lawyer. So I'm going to try to harken back to my elementary school days and, 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 and do my best. <laughs> what's the, what's the Philadelphia reference? I, you know what? I, I, I did ask, um, a great aunt of mine, what do you mean Philadelphia lawyer? And, um, she said, well, if I said the sky was blue and you said it was red, you would argue with me for three hours. And at the end of three hours, everybody in the room would be like, yeah, you got, you got a point. Maybe it is red. <laughs> As I'm a, I grew up not far from Philadelphia, and uh, I'm used to people ragging on Philly for us being like horrible fans and things like that of sports teams. I just hadn't heard the lawyer thing before. Yeah, me either. And, and you know what? It's probably I've never done like some kind of like linguistic uh study or, or 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 word origin is probably some pejorative term probably but i think <laughs> it was just the point of making that i like to debate and i like to be devil's advocate and i like to grill people so i think that's what that meant. all right so we're gonna get to that in a second what, should, what are we gonna talk about first <laughs> um actually one of the interesting stories this week i think is the story that uh jericho casper uh wrote on uh preemption um it's an important story it's something that we track over the years, and there's been some some interesting movement over this past uh, over the past year in the first half of 2021 in a couple of states. Yeah, I think I think we I think we have talked about it a little bit, but one of the things that I've found is that it can be really useful to repeat ourselves uh, because for some reason people don't listen to every last word of every last podcast and read every last post. So you know, for people who are familiar, let's just consider this a refreshing of the memory, and we're not going to take too long with it. Um, but yeah, we had we had two huge developments this year. You want to just go over them in brief? Believe it or not, for folks who aren't necessarily familiar, there are actually a number of states that have these legal barriers to municipal broadband networks or municipalities building and operating their own locally owned Internet um, access networks. And um, that number had been 19, 19 states that had some form of barrier or outright bans. And we saw it drop down by two, 19 down to 17 by our count. And that's because Arkansas, 
and the state of Washington both rolled back significantly the barriers um, to municipal broadband. In, in Washington, they essentially allowed the public entities such as public utility districts to get into the retail side of of broadband. They had been able to offer wholesale service, but not retail service. And in Arkansas, they essentially rolled back the barriers for municipalities uh, to pursue, you know, municipal broadband solutions. And the thing that I find most interesting about Arkansas is that it is a state legislature that is dominated by Republicans and that was a unanimous vote to roll back those restrictions where on the federal level earlier in the year, you saw congressional Republicans introduce some bills that would have done the exact opposite and and made it much more widespread across the country. So it's an interesting, I think, kind of juxtaposition where you've got um, that nuance in, in that you can't say that this is just totally partisan where it's the Republicans who are opposed to local internet choice and um, Democrats who are in favor, it's a mixed bag. And, and Arkansas is an interesting example of that. So anyway, um, and then also, of course, this year, we almost added one because Ohio, you know, with their last minute anonymous uh, Senate amendment that would have banned municipal networks in the state of Ohio, whoever it was that proposed that in the budget never raised their hand. And in fact, because of the public outcry, including from the Republican governor and lieutenant governor, that that budget amendment went down in flames. And so Ohio did not join the list of states that have municipal broadband bans. That's right. But uh, I hear through the, you know, the grapevine that Ohio may be coming back to revisit that. I don't know if that's still going to be in a special session that would come up or if it'll just be in the 2022 session. But from what I hear, Ohio isn't done flirting with the idea of that. Um, also, Ohio uh, did put $250 million into a state broadband program. That money is only available to, uh, I believe, the private sector. And uh, we learned, uh, Rye found out that Hawaii uh, also created a broadband subsidy program and does not allow public entities to apply for that. And that's just frustrating. I mean, we see that in Michigan, Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, a bunch of places are doing this where uh, they're only offering subsidies to the companies that have refused to invest in the areas and and they just make it harder for communities to solve their own problems. It's uh, it's crazy because you would think they would say, you know, we, we so value taxpayer dollars. We want to be so careful with taxpayer dollars that we're going to make sure that we put this money uh, into the entity that will do the best job. Uh, but instead it's not, it's, it's this sense of, we're going to do, you know, this, this company, Time Warner Cable, Time Warner Cable, how old am I? Um, Charter Spectrum, (laughs) Charter Spectrum, Uh very powerful in Ohio. You know, they're they're the ones setting this, setting this argument out and they're the ones pushing for it. So, um, it's just, it's frustrating that that we see that sort of stuff and it's a poor use of taxpayer dollars when you're going to subsidize, uh, use more money to subsidize a solution that is going to be less good for people and businesses in that area. It's foolish. Right. It, frustrating, but not surprising. You know, I mean, especially considering that there's, there's sort of a in, in inherent um, ideological advantage that that argument has in the sense that, you know, there's this idea out there that's very deeply embedded in, in a large segment of the population that governments have shouldn't be in business whatsoever and that the that private business will solve everything as it relates to the market. And so they have that sort of advantage of, of, of just basically relying on that faith that that many people have that the market will magically solve this problem. And in many instances, that may be the case, but certainly in broadband, that has <laughs> we've got a failed and broken market. It's stunning that there are folks out there that think somehow business as usual is going to solve these connectivity challenges. Now, there's millions of people who have been waiting for 20 years for decent internet access. And there's just this, there's people out there who are saying, oh, well, you know, you, you shouldn't do anything with the government because maybe the private sector will solve it eventually. Well, that's, it's, it's crazy thinking. 
Um, so, um, so what else, what else do we have going on? We have one other thing I think we're going to talk about. Actually, I was, there's something I didn't put on the list that I wanted to note. Uh, Washington always reminds me of it because there's such a vibrant movement in Washington now to figure out what to do with this new authority in Arkansas. There's a bunch of cities who are talking about it as well, but in Washington, there's a real activist movement trying to figure out like, what can they do? And, uh, one of the things our colleague Dawes will be doing is, uh, and there'll be an announcement about this soon on muninetworks.org, but we have started, uh, email lists. Um, there's two email lists that'll be national in scope, one of which will be focused on more like announcements and and just uh, you know, the occasional breaking news or something like that. It's meant to be low traffic and just easy for people that want to make sure they don't miss big deals. The other one is more discussion, but we also want to keep that moderated and very reasonable. And that one would be more about like exchanging strategies as like activists in Seattle might be sharing uh, ideas that, that folks might use in other parts of the country and just uh you know we may have some some guided discussions in there to talk about different strategies but our goal is to make sure people are in communication with each other and that's something that Daz, our outreach coordinator will be be looking into and um, we already have the list set up on groups.io now we just got to get folks aware of them certainly a worthwhile effort you know that you know that that networking and and, and sharing lessons learned and and, and strategies and so forth are, are, are crucial because if you've pointed out many times you know this is not a space where we've got you know a Sierra Club um, level of, of, of organization um, sharing best practices and lobbying and hundreds and of all activists these kind of in every things. state. Yeah, exactly. So this is these these are uh, in, in important uh, efforts. I think something else we should probably also mention. Sort of, yeah, it is on the website, but we should m- make mention of it. Do you think there are any GIS or data visualization specialists out there listening to our program? <laughs> Or people who know, you know, advanced GIS and data visualization. Um, Michelle is departing our team for an exciting opportunity. Um, so we are we're hiring, and uh, this is something that is is pretty advanced. Uh, we're not just looking for you know someone who's um, come out of undergrad with a GIS degree, but someone that has experience um, doing a lot of tying data sets together that that may be a little bit challenging. Uh, a lot of exciting work to be done in that space. So um, this is a job that can be done anywhere in the U.S., um, although you know, people living in in low cost of living places, <laughs> we encourage them to apply most because... Are there boy, any of those left? <laughs> you know, I mean, trying to pay a guy um, in Cape Cod is uh, is harder than trying to pay a guy in the Black Hills of South Dakota. I'll tell you that. <laughs> True. True. And, and frankly, the Black Hills have better internet access than you do, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, don't get me started. It's that it's one of the things that you know I find fascinating and and and, and sometimes personally frustrating writing about these different municipal networks and you're you, you know you're seeing things like what people are getting a symmetrical gig for fifty bucks a month. This so the podcast that um that recently came out probably because we're recording this and it hasn't been released yet, but I think this show will come out right after that one. Um, we just talked about a guy who's building this ten gig network. Um, well, a, a group of people in Los Altos Hills in California. $150 for um 100 for a 10 gig network and uh um that's it's remarkable what's out there cuz i mean like 10 gig is available in many municipal cities but it's often 300 bucks so i mean i don't even, you have to pay like 500 bucks for a router that will handle that as it is so it's not, it's not a low cost proposition but it's remarkable what's being done out there it really is it really is and it it's enough to make somebody like me living in a place where you're stuck with one provider who's charging a ridiculous amount very jealous yes to well, the point least, where I've even thought about relocating. <laughs> at least you have super high reliability, right? That's what you got out there, right? It never goes down or anything. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> it might go down while we're doing this. <laughs> All right. So so how should, we, how should we phrase this? How are you going to grill me today? What, are we, what am I being grilled on? I see it as being sort of a, a, a grilling about the wisdom or lack thereof of broadband regulation. Yeah, we got two paths ahead of us, right? Like, which path are we going to take? And right, and can we, are we prom- can we call people about- that are going down one path dumb? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. So there's there's so let's say what those two paths are. There's the there's the regulatory path, and then there's what the the, the pro competition path. Would yeah. that be the? Yeah, I mean, you might think of it as the break them up path um, or the fantasy path, <laughs> but <laughs> um, but yeah, you have one which is the idea of like let's have really strong regulators, and the other is. Uh, let's not allow any one um, entity to get too big and have too much market share. Right. I think 
what I'd like to grill you on is I'd like for you to make the case why the pro competition path, the one that encourages competitive markets is preferable and the path that we should be more focused on versus the regulatory path, which has all kinds of complexities and hurdles involved, but nevertheless is a tool in the toolbox. So I'm, I guess I'm going to be on the, why aren't we going regulation crazy Yeah, side of things? Yeah. Let me, let me say that and preface this. Like, I don't think people are crazy for choosing a different path than, than we do at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Um, I think both paths are, are very difficult. Uh, both paths have a lot of points at which we can fail. And so it's worth taking that seriously. This is a, and it's, it's a long-term discussion, right? I mean, it's fascinating to go back and learn more about the progressive era uh, for someone who, you know, many of us barely learned about it in high school. Maybe we learned about it a little bit in college. And when you go back and you have this, this, this sense a hundred years ago from the titans of the era that, that they could solve all these problems and that, frankly, you just need to have these massive hierarchical organizations around smart people that would make everything easy and, and everything would be great. You know, we'd collapse time and space and, um, and as long as government didn't get in the way and, and those like inefficient small companies didn't get in the way, these massive corporations would build these cool cars and everything else. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think down that path, it's, it's seductive in some ways because there are really smart people and some of these corporations can really do pretty incredible things. Um, mm-hmm. But it's also a path of corruption. It's a path of, of an aristocracy in which, um, you know, I feel like the people at the top just end up cementing themselves in. And no matter how many bad decisions they make, they will never not be in the top. Um, right. And so... Um, that's where I feel like, and I, frankly, some people might think, even think of that as being more elegant in some ways, because like, it's not messy. Like the path we want to go down for competition, it can be messy, right? Like some communities might not get much competition. Um, some communities, um, will have like interesting companies that then fail or get bought out by someone else. Like it's going to be dynamic. Right. Um, so yeah. So anyway, so I'm, sort of, I'm sort of like waxing on and on here. Go ahead and cut me yeah, off. Yeah. No, 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 no. I kind of, but I kind of want to tee up the fact that, um, Here's what I think about when I think about regulation is that, first of all, my understanding of the history of telecommunication in America is really one of monopoly power where competition is the exception. It's not yes. as if there's yes. like this, this, this long, wonderful history of competition and we're in this tiny period where monopoly power has suddenly presented itself, particularly as it relates to telecommunication Monopoly power has been the rule, not the exception. Right. And that's, I mean, like, there was this, there's this argument, right? Which is, um, it comes out of electricity more, but it's the analogs to telecom are so strong. And it's, uh, it's not just competition, it's ruinous competition, Sean. That's, that's a term of art that comes back mm. from the electric monopolies. Cause in the early days of electricity, you had all of these companies stringing up all these wires. And that's super dangerous. I mean, these are, you know, lines that actually, they're not fiber optic lines where, like, if they get cut, big deal. These are lines that carry electricity and zap you and, and children and, and were real dangerous. And it was ugly and it was a mess. And there was a sense of we can establish order by just having one entity. And it is true that in telecom, as with electricity, that as in many things, frankly, um, it is cheaper and more efficient, depending on how you want to use definitions of efficient, to have one well-organized company that is well-regulated, heavily regulated, um, that just does everything. You have one set of mm-hmm. wires. You know, you don't have extra sets of bucket trucks. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it reminds me of there's this uh, <laughs> people talk about in the Pacific Northwest. You're on the highway and you see like two trucks carrying logs going the opposite direction. And you're like, well, that seems inefficient, right? I mean, the same <laughs> logs. Like, <laughs> where are they going? <laughs> can't, can't they better coordinate? Um, and... It is true that like if you had one set and, and, that, and that was just going to do it, they're going to do a great job. Um, and, like there's a regular who's going to make sure they weren't cheating people that, right. um, you know, that that could be really attractive. And we mm-hmm. did that with electricity. Right. And we did that with AT&T for all those years. And you can go back and study the court cases and the frustrations people have, because mm-hmm. the thing is, is the problem is always people. And the issue is that whether it's good faith or not, they start making decisions that are better for themselves than for the customers or the, the businesses that are dependent on the telecommunications. And, right. and so in electricity, you know, we've had a hundred years of this regulation more or less and less. Um, but 
I don't know what day is it, um, but the um, <laughs> <laughs> but what we see is, I mean, Ohio, let's come back to Ohio, right? Like you have uh, the electric companies that are regulated bribing the um, the elected officials in the in the state uh, legislature to mm-hmm. give them billions of dollars. So, I mean, like the uh, favors and we saw this in South Carolina where there wasn't even bribes necessarily, but but the regulators just do a terrible job because. Understand that if you're a regulator of one of these industries, you only ever hear from the companies you're regulating from, right? Right. Like you don't right. go to the grocery store and people are patting you on the back and being like, hey, thanks for keeping my electricity prices low or hey, right. we had that big storm and the power never went out. You're doing a great job. We appreciate that, right? Nobody notices that. <laughs> They call that regulatory capture. Yeah, right, right, which is, I feel like usually people have like an edge to them. Like, you know, it's like it's like those regulators are bad people who are, are just personally ambitious. Well, yeah, but like the things that you know as a regulator, it's not like you're going to go out and Apple's going to hire you, right? Like you're not going to like go and suddenly like code for Google or for like a really exciting entrepreneurial startup or something like that, right? The stuff that you learn is relevant in, for a small number of jobs. And most of those are going to be working for the companies that you're regulating today. And so mm-hmm. you just you start to see the world in the way that the companies do because there's no incentive for you to see the world in a different way generally. Now states like California and New York, they have systems in which um there's money available for the public sector and like local public organizations to weigh in on these and that helps, but it's still not good enough. And so yep. what else, the regulators just aren't that good. And then right. on top of that, the last thing I'll say about that is that like is that when you have companies the size of Comcast, it's not even clear to me that like a federal regulator can can do that can can really discipline them, because Comcast has so much power. When they when they, Comcast wanted to merge with um, who was it? Um, one of the mergers that went through, I think it was NBC Directv. No, no, I think it was NBC Universal. It was like um, mm. uh, that was AT and T and Directv. Um, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. Comcast and Susan Crawford talks about this in, in one of her books. Uh, mm-hmm. Comcast hired every last lobbying firm in DC and law firm that um, was available that that had any real opportunity to like be a threat, so that they would have a conflict of interest and not be able to take on mm. clients to oppose the Comcast merger. Um, you know, regulators can't deal with in that world. Like it's just, there's too much private power. Okay. So that, I, so these are all good points, but let me push you on this. So, so just because we've got imperfect regulators and you've got these problems with regulatory capture and so, so on and so forth, I don't think it's the same thing as saying that we shouldn't have regulation. Oh, I'm not saying we shouldn't have regulation. Yeah. No. Okay. Yeah, okay. No. Good, good, no, good. No, I mean, we so, should. Yeah. I do think like it should be closer to light touch than heavy touch. Um, gotcha. if I'm going to adopt the industry's terms. <laughs> uh, okay. Now, and, and I would also further make the case that, a big reason why we need to regulate, particularly telecommunication in the broadband space, is that communication services are unique. It's like they, you can't look at them solely in economic terms. Like speech and information are not commodities like Air Force Ones or p- peanuts or, you know. Pretty sure um, Air Force Ones is not a commodity, but I take your point. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? They're, they're not just yeah, they're not yeah. just these products. And it's about, you know, oh, wouldn't it be nice if, you know. You know, the, 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 this is the, there's something fundamental about. Yeah, because I'm old, I'll often say they're not iPods, and no one knows what an iPod is anymore. So that's right. That's right. They're not iPods or Walkman. Right. Even better. Um, <laughs> although the Discman was far preferable, shorter lived. And then also, there's this issue where I feel like focusing on like cultivating competition is obviously important. It's something that we advocate for and is 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 really important, but. It takes so long to foster competitive markets. It's like, what do you do in the meantime? So it's kind of like a... And they can die so quickly. Exactly. Let me argue against myself for a second. Because one of the people who has contributed to our work and and is like uh, someone that I think is a good thinker on this, um, uh, Fred Pilot from out in um, El Dorado County, you know, he is constantly attacking, challenging, let's say, uh, me in saying that anytime I talk about a market, it's foolish. Like this is, it's not even possible to have a market in, in many of these, um, cases. And, um, you know, like what do do we really want? Like 10 different physical wired networks to choose from. Um, and I think that's a good argument. Um, and I would say, no, not 10, 
<laughs> you know, like um, I, you know, my vision is more like um, at least one wholesale network that's available that solves that issue. Um, and but yeah, I mean, like you know, there's places in which it's unreasonable to think that you know, there's places in which we haven't gotten a single high quality network out to. Like, are we really going to build three there? No, probably not. You're you're very pragmatic. You're, you're I, I like the practicality <laughs> in the way that you, that you approach things seriously. I'm not just you know that's that that's it's it's an important quality to have, especially in this space. So, you know, one of the things that I, you know, just in thinking about this discussion, I, you know, I was particularly impressed with uh, a book that you recommended. I, I read Tim Wu's book, the master switch. And then that last chapter in particular, the separations principle, you know, one of the things that he says in there, he says schemes designed to seed or foster competition or more dangerous, still new entitlements that are meant to be pro-competitive do little to restrain the monopolist while creating new ways for it to destroy, for it to destroy its challengers. And in that chapter, he talks about how, you know, our political system was, you know, theoretically designed to prevent abuses of public power, but we really haven't done much about applying that separations principle as it relates to private economic power. And so he kind of talks about some of the tenets that he sees of, of applying that separations principle to to particularly telecommunications. And one of the things he says is that as a general rule, governments do better with negative rules. Thou shall not. Simple, um, simple rules too. Simple rules. And to your point earlier about sort of the, you know, the regulatory capture is that another tenet of that separation is that antitrust enforcers really have to adopt structural remedies as opposed to behavioral remedies. Yes. Um, yeah, because I, so do, you, do you want to respond to that? Yeah, no, I, I think that's 100% accurate. What it comes down to is if there's a rule that requires three lawyers working tons of overtime in order to figure out how to enforce it, it's not going to work. Because, you know, you and I, you know, you've been in this space now for, for a year. And, um, you know, it takes so much to be able to, like, comment intelligently on this as as we try to do. And we engage in a minority of dockets and things like that, you know, where these rules are discussed and things like that. And like the intricacies of this, not like every time you're dealing with those sort of intricacies, uh, we're playing a monopolist turf where they have the power to argue about these rules and how they're enforced. And um, because there's only so much attention, whether it's public interest groups or the public itself has in this. And so simple rules like thou shalt not, like you shall not um, acquire, um, uh, you know, a competitor in, in a market on that, under these kind of conditions, um, which already is starting to get more compl- complicated, right? Like under what conditions? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But like saying like you can't have more than 30% of, uh, of a share of, of this market and, um, things like that, um, that it's easier to tell. We've talked a lot about broadband subsidies going to the satellite providers. And it gets down to this issue of like, well, uh, we all know that satellite can't provide decent telephone service. But for it to be a rule, it's like, oh, well, we have this test that we use. And under these testing conditions, does it achieve this score or not? And then mm-hmm. you're sort of like playing with it and whether or not like it sort of like barely fits it. When in fact, we all know it doesn't work well. But like you can just play with these rules behind the scenes and no one notices. And so when you have like those sort of complicated rules, uh, it's just ripe for being abused. And that's where the telecom, that's where the regulatory side falls down. I think that's where the elegance is in making sure that if a person's being abused by a company, they have another choice. And maybe that choice is switching to another provider. Maybe that choice is going with a provider where if that provider screws them, they can uh, you know, vote to change the board, uh, whether that's a co-op or a municipality, you know, where they have a direct uh, opportunity to speak out on it. Because we, we see two systems, right? And I'll go back to electricity now. For, for 70 years, we've had these co-ops, hundreds, you know, like 800 electric co-ops. And if you compare their service and their customer satisfaction to the ones that are regulated by the public interest, right? There's a huge difference. And, mm-hmm. and it's very clear that even though the co-op board is an imperfect way of structuring this stuff, it works so much better than the regulator. Um, having that local interest. And and so that's, I guess I would say that if we were to go a route where we re- relied primarily on regulators, they shouldn't be in DC. 
Like it's mm-hmm. just, the, the simple fact is the farther away from, from uh, the people you get, the, the, the more corrupt it is, the less people lose um, a sense of, of what's important. And, you know, let me just say one last thing, because I, I could just keep going on and on. But that's like the companies will then be like, oh, you want us to operate under a patchwork of such of conditions? Yeah, I want you to operate under a patchwork of conditions. Like, <laughs> like you know, like like company, company A and company B, one's in Illinois, one's in Indiana. Right. They operate under different conditions. If you want to compete with both of them, then you have to compete by the local rules. Like it's not too much to ask. And then yeah. it actually is. It, it provides a little bit more fairness in the marketplace, actually, because you don't have one company that's able to get easier rules to comply with simply because they're bigger and they have better lobbyists. Yeah. Now, speaking of bigger and lobbyists and, and specifically as it relates to telecommunication and broadband, why not regulate the broadband broadband industry under Title II of the Communications Act? Oh, we should. Absolutely. It, let's be clear, um, because for people who don't follow this closely, this is a big debate for the past I don't know, eight years or so. And uh, there were people who said um, that if we didn't use Title II, which is to say the FCC, and a quick history lesson or civics lesson, the FCC is a part of the executive branch. And Congress basically says to the executive branch, put into this bucket and that bucket. And so Congress gave the FCC these buckets. One, Title I, is information services, which is like a variety of things that it really didn't want the FCC to have a whole lot of power over. It just sort of let things develop as they would. Title II is is like uh, is telephone services, telecommunication services. And these are things that like we wanted to have much tighter regulation on, including uh, rate control and requirement to share the lines under different circumstances and things like that. And so in order to heavily regulate uh, broadband, which is currently considered a Title I service and has been for a while, you would actually have to make it a Title II service. And so the FCC has to go through a process involving public input to say, we officially are deciding that broadband is now a Title II service. And they did that under Obama. And that gives them much greater power. They did it under Obama only as it related to net neutrality. Right. Well, that, that was the big issue. But like that meant that broadband is under Title II. And so mm-hmm. if they if they had decided to, in theory, they could have actually engaged in rate regulation and requirements right. to for Comcast to share their broadband network and things like that. But they said that they would not do that. And I think that was the right choice, although a lot of people will disagree with me on that, the people I respect. Um, and so I actually I do think that um, broadband is absolutely Title II. Um, you know, which is to say that the FCC should have a lot of power uh, over it under our current regulatory scheme. I could certainly imagine better regulatory schemes, although I don't really trust Congress or our public processes right now to develop them. So in the world of options that we have today, I think having um, broadband be Title II makes a lot of sense. But I don't think the FCC should go um, totally into regulating it in the way that they would, uh, they have done for telephone services and things like that. Because it's just, it's a little bit different. And right. one of the things that I would say is different is that we want, I, I think we want to live in a world with overlapping broadband networks, right? Like I want to have in my home, I would like to have a choice of wired providers. I'd also like to have a, a series of wireless options, which I do right now. And, and depending on whether you're talking about the mobile services and whatnot, um, I don't, uh, we don't have to spend a lot of time talking about how people want a high quality fixed connection. They're not just going to use their mobile services for a variety of reasons, but mm-hmm. nonetheless, I have overlapping uh, networks available to me and that's great for resilience as long as they're actually truly overlapping and we don't just have like one company that's sort of offering different services with a single point of failure. But we want to live in a world that has overlapping services. And so I think... Um, you know, I think that that involves competition, particularly in urban areas. And and part of the competition, though, it can't just be, um, you know, crap DSL versus uh, expensive cable. That's not competition. One of the points of competition, I think, should be a local provider, um, ideally one that has some kind of public interest requirements, um, you know, ideally a city that is providing, you know, um, a, a variety of options to enable other companies to operate on it. That's my ideal anyway. Right. Well, I, I got to say one signal for me that Title II is the way to go is because there seems to be nothing that strikes fear in the heart of the broadband industry than <laughs> Title II. So that's got to be a signal that it's that's rule the of right thumb. way to do Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, like, uh, uh, they um, they have a number of, of good points, um, few compared to the number of points that, that they will put out. 
uh, in terms of dangers with that. But uh, under the current regulatory system, that's the way to go. And yeah. and I think many of us really fear opening up the box to write a new telecommunications act. You know, especially given that we just had a group of people, um, you know, like um, try to uh, take over Congress to stop the transfer of power and possibly to kill the member, a uh, member of the party, the, the vice president that the, uh, of the party that they were supporting. Um, mm-hmm. There's some real craziness that I feel like we have to reckon with before we do any sort of like major long term policy right now. And so anyway, like, I mean, it's just um, hadn't hadn't thought about that. But I mean, well, I shouldn't say I. I think about that stuff all the time, but I hadn't thought about it in relation to to broadband policy. But that, that uh, yeah, I mean, that, like, so I mean, just as an example, like one of the people who talks a lot about antitrust is Josh Hawley. Like, do I trust him to like make any kind of policy? No, I think he's corrupt. Like, I think you know, like a lot of these people um, are really. Um, we can always talk about the flaws of elected officials. I think we have a particularly um, dangerous crop of elected officials moving in at all levels of power right now. And I think we should all be deeply concerned about that. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. I mean, and I, and I, and clearly a lot of people are, um, you know, by the way, we should also mention that our, that our homie Harold Feld makes, make, make, makes a lot of these arguments uh, on, on makes a lot of really good arguments about why elements of title two are precisely what the doctor ordered or should order. Yeah, I think Harold Feld is a deeply thoughtful person on this stuff and um, um, strongly supportive of it. And um, uh, But there's others who would strongly argue that um, we just need Congress to step in and say Comcast can't raise rates anymore or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And my fear is just that it won't work. Um, we saw an attempt to do that with the Cable Act. And what happens is that in order to say you can't raise rates, you have to come up with these legal standards of what's an unreasonable rate increase and this and that. And we're just playing in the monopolist turf when it comes to that. And I think we'll spend years in the courts in which prices will still go up and we'll ultimately give up because um, it's not a, a battle we can win. And, and some people will, will say, well, that's no reason not to go there. Um, but I say we have a better option. And that option is to like, Make sure that we're creating real competition because every time we create a competitive market that Comcast has to respond to, we're taking away a little bit of Comcast power in D.C. That's mm-hmm. the way we have to take down a monopolist is is by um, is by making sure that they aren't um, just pulling you know wealth out of our communities and then using it against us in D.C. Um, and, and the way we do that, I think, is by organizing locally around broadly popular things that people on the left and the right all agree in terms of having locally accountable systems uh, to provide this broadband service. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's excellent. And and then just this one last thing, just in the limited case, I did come across a really interesting paper written by a assistant professor of law at the University of uh, uh, California, Berkeley. Uh, the professor's name is Tejas Narshana, I'm, I'm probably mispronouncing his name. I hope he forgives me. But it's a really interesting paper in which he makes the case for broadband rate regulation. It's called Convergence in a Case for Broadband Rate Regulation. And I'm going to oversimplify. It's about a 50-something page paper. It's really good. But what the, the case that he makes is sort of the, a limited approach where, you know, sort of based on this the 1992 um, uh, um, Cable Television Consumer Protection and Competition Act, that emphasizes facility-based competition among cable operators. He's saying that the, the the rationale for that, you know, as it related to cable rates is the same rationale really that could apply to internet service. And his specific recommendation in that paper is that, that you have some form of rate regulation only in areas where there's a local monopoly. What do you think about that sort of, you know, that, that sort of that limited approach? And, and it kind of reminds me um, of some, some other things that we've seen in California, but particularly in New York. And I know it's being litigated where you, for example, you know, regulate that, you, you know, it's sort of the opposite of thou shall not. It's more that thou shall offer a, a low income option, so to speak, or a, a low price. option. I fundamentally think that requiring a low priced option is not it should not be considered rate regulation of the kind that we're talking about. Like there's sort of like there's rate regulation that says you have to offer a low income option. And that's a real light touch. And we can talk about the pros and cons of that. Cause that can be hard on small companies depending on where mm-hmm. they are. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but then that is just it's wholly different from rate regulation, which is we're going to set your entire rate structure and maximums on it and things like that. And so I think there are people who are trying to use the term rate regulation um, in ways that don't really fit to argue against that um, that basic tier uh, requirement. Um, but let me, I mean, the larger part of your question, this, um, the targeted approach, like this is something that, that we know people are thinking about in DC and trying to figure out what we can do about areas that don't have good competition. And it reminds me, frankly, I mean, we go back to, um, the cable television services and, um, when you say an area has a monopoly, okay, well, we have to define what that means. And this is where the trouble begins <clears throat> because, okay, I'm, I'm in an area and now T-Mobile is offering a fixed service. Does Comcast have a monopoly or does Charter Spectrum have a monopoly if they're the only wired fixed wireless? And the reason I, I, I pick on that is because I remember around 10, 12 years ago, I was trying to get my head around the way the FCC was dealing with cable competition because there was a rule that in markets that did not have effective cable competition, the cable provider had to offer uniform rates across the market uh, in order to protect against a monopoly from just charging very low prices in places where, where a competitor was trying to come in. And so the FCC had to do these periodic determinations of what was effective competition. And there was a period where it was clear the FCC just said, you know what, we're tired of fighting about this. Every place has effective competition. And the lesson I took away from that is the regulator that has to enforce a rule that you might create as a policymaker may not care about the goals that you have as a policymaker. And so, you know, we want a regulator that, that deeply, you know, understands and cares about all of this stuff. And I think many regulator employees do. But at the same time, if we're asking them to do these thankless jobs, we shouldn't be surprised if they just give up and they say, you know what, we're tired of having this fight in market after market. We agree. There's cable competition everywhere, even if there's not. Uh, mm -hmm. That's just it's something that we see happening with with the regulators. So. Uh, you know, it's easy to spin out hypotheses about, um, well, we'll just do this in these areas and that in those areas. Someone has to figure out where the lines are between those areas. And they get fatigued over time of fighting 30, 40, 50 times with a, with a monopoly about how, where those lines are. So that's just what happens over time. Would you agree that the problems of affordability are worse than access? Right now, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's um, probably two or three times as many Americans who are struggling with, with affordability problems as compared to a lack of availability. And I think because that's the case, you know, rate regulation is very uh, is a very um, seductive area to talk about. Yeah, I mean, but here's, here's the reality, right? So, okay, so we want to do rate regulation, right? So um, FCC has to go through a process to um, in order to to say uh, broadband is Title II and we can rate regulate it, right? So in order to do that, uh, we need a 3-2 FCC. Right now we have a 2-2 FCC and we don't really know what the path is to having a 3-2. It's just it's, for people who aren't familiar, the president has not appointed uh, the, the a new person to the FCC to replace the previous chair, Ajit Pai, who stepped down. So we have that. That's going to be six months, probably. Um, that person, like this probably isn't going to be the first thing that they do, but they're going to start that docket. It's going to be a year of fighting, right? So now we're 18 months out. Then the court cases start, right? And we have like, I don't know, three or four years of court cases. So now we have to assume that the president is reelected and the new chair of the FCC wants to continue this battle. Um, it's not a foregone conclusion by any stretch of the imagination. Um, we have to assume that the FCC wins all of those court cases, uh, potentially at the Supreme Court, which is super deferential to corporations. I mean, like people talk about abortion and they talk about a number of other things that are, you know, that the, the court might be either in step or out of step with the public on. But there's no doubt that like even a lot of the Democrats on that have appointed people to the Supreme Court, super deferential to corporations. So, sure. so now we have to have the Supreme Court support the FCC and all of this, which doesn't seem super likely. And so just in practicality, like the best case scenario is an unlikely situation in which in like, I don't know, five or six years, we would have the ability for the FCC to begin regulating rates. Um, it seems unlikely uh, to me. So Very that's, unlikely, but that's the path. Right. So, in, it, you know, I, I guess in conclusion, it, it, it's probably worth saying then that, and I don't know if you'd agree with this, that it's not an either or in terms of cultivating competition versus um, 
putting in place, you know, certain regulations, light touch or otherwise. Um, it's, it's a both and. Yes. I think uh, we need to have smart regulations, strategic regulations that, that can work. Um, not this sort of thing of, well, maybe we'll study redlining for a while and, you know, maybe we'll magically come up with something. Um, but um, we need to, uh, frankly, uh, if we're going to break up, like the biggest cable and telephone companies, which might be necessary to have real competition because just the temptation to abuse a monopoly of having that much power is very, uh, is very common. So we need like good regulations while we're trying to get to a point because under no circumstances are we going to have robust marketplaces in three or four years in a lot of places, right? right? Like we need to keep moving in that direction, but we need smart regulation along the way. And I, you know, I think one of the things we'll see is that this is not going away. Uh, I think some people in Congress believe that they're going to drop $42 billion on broadband infrastructure and they're going to be done talking about it for a while. I think, it's gonna, I think they're going to be surprised at how many people are frankly angry at them because, because they're going to go back to their districts and be like, oh, we invested in broadband. And there's a whole lot of people who are going to be like, my bill just went up and I don't have a choice. What are you doing for me? So right. that's going to be with us for a while. And the question right. is then, I think... I mean, this is a question for the audience and their neighbors and things like that, because, Sean, you and I aren't going to save them, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, we're out here to like try and like give hope for people who are doing something. But fundamentally, this changes when people you know, form organizations like the Sierra Club, when they are join organizations like the Sierra Club. I mean, not to just keep using them, Ducks Unlimited, you know, like whatever, like groups that are organized around issues that they care about, and then they are effective in. This is not something that, you know, if you just give money to um, Fight for the Future um, or, or Free Press or us, like great organizations. It's it's not going to be enough. Like fundamentally, we definitely need people to be out there doing stuff. Yeah, for sure. Now, do you consider um, it's not related to price regulation per se? But would you would, would you put this under the regulation umbrella? This this uh, this move by the uh, the FCC uh, or what's in the um, infrastructure bill that hasn't yet passed, but consumer label nutrition's. Oh, I think it's great. Yeah. Oh, no. That's one of the absolute bright line rules, like simple rules. Like we need we need ISPs to be very clear about what they're offering. Uh, you know, Emma, Emma work is working with us right now. She's doing great work um, in terms of trying to like track mm-hmm. down some transparency issues. And we just see even among some municipalities, um, you know, munis- municipalities and co-ops aren't perfect on this. They, it's not clear what they're offering at what price. That's ridiculous. <laughs> like, right. The very least, I mean, as someone who strongly believes in markets, we need clear prices. We need people to be able to understand what they can get with it. And a broadband nutrition label is not perfect, right? It's very difficult difficult to explain what some of that stuff means. And frankly, like some of that stuff is dynamic, changes mm-hmm. over time. Um, mm-hmm. And so like, but we need something like that. And and frankly, we can't say because it's not perfect, we're not going to do it. Um, so, so that's where we, we need something like that. Yeah. You know, it's, I guess it should be obvious why transparency is so important. But one of the things that I think, you know, it's not regulation per se, but there is power in transparency. And we've seen that you really can embarrass companies into doing the right thing. I mean, you know, we well, see it uh, all the time. Well, there's, there's a reason the FCC has not collected and, and provided pricing information in a usable form to the public because the, the big companies are desperately opposed to this and the smaller companies are split. Many of them already have fairly transparent pricing, uh, whether they're publicly owned or privately owned. Um, and some don't. Um, but there's a whole bunch of them that spend a lot of time at the FCC saying, this is unfair. You can't do this. Like we have this complex pricing, you know, like we, we do pricing on a block by block basis and this and that. And it's like, okay, um, you need to make it transparent. You know, like if you want to if you want to engage in a pricing regime that's that complicated and it's going to cost you a lot more to be transparent about it. OK, but you have to be transparent about it. Like, right. <laughs> you know, that's on you. But um, but they don't do that. The, the federal communication not only hasn't done that, it's not on a path to do it. And that's because uh, the, the companies really would be embarrassed if they had to admit their pricing uh, in a lot of different areas. And they don't want people like us to be able to highlight the r- gross uh, differences for the same cable plant uh, to be, you know, charging people such different rates in different parts of town. Well, Your Honor, uh, the prosecution rest, or or, <laughs> or was I the defense? I I, I don't know. I, and I I certainly wasn't, you know, at the F. Lee Bailey, Johnny Cochran level of 
of, of grilling, but no, uh, it's, a, it's a good conversation. You know, you said about like me being pragmatic. Like, I feel like anyone who wants to win in this, like, frankly, you know, trying to like shade the truth or lie about your opponents, um, it doesn't help. Like, I mean, like if you really want to win this in the long term, like you have to engage with honest arguments. Um, you have to figure out when you can have honest arguments because some people are not honest. Right. And right. I might be wrong about some things, but I think almost everyone who deals with me recognizes I try I try really hard to be honest. And that's just because, like, I don't want to spend 20 years of my life doing something I fail at. And, like, I think that, you know, if I just go around trying to do the easiest thing, you know, make the easy arguments, like, we're going to lose. So we have to grapple with real arguments. It, it reminds me, I used to keep on a note card in my cubicle in the Cape Cod Times newsroom, a quote from J.S. Mill that said, he who knows only his own side of the case knows very little of that. I no longer am in a cubicle, but I've wrote those words into my, in, into my heart and mind, and I really think that's true. And so it's important to, you know, in good faith, wrestle with all of these issues from every, you know, conceivable angle, if we're going to arrive at a, at, at a better place. So, um no, it's a it's an interesting conversation, and you know maybe down the road we can do this on on some other issue where you know we can yeah kind of... yeah you should ask people to to write in because that works really well. Tell them, <laughs> that... Yeah, and only the people who made it this long will write in. <laughs> and and if I get the job again, you know I'll be better. You know what I mean? Um... No, I think I mean that's the thing is I feel like you know we're not going to do every episode like this, but I think mm-hmm. diving deep into some of these issues and and maybe for some people having a better sense of how this stuff fits together, maybe that was useful. So, uh I hope people will, you know, just drop us a note on social media or send us a note if uh if they like this uh, or if you've listened this long and you're really angry, uh you can definitely like send me hate mail and I'll take it because uh <laughs> you know, if you listen to this much while being frustrated, you deserve an outlet. No doubt. <laughs> All right. Cool. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ilsr.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.